Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power, where we explore ideas and concepts of active nonviolence and the ideals of pacifism and their interplay with real-life situations. I'm Joanne Perry, your host. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Shelley Tuchluck. Dr. Tuchluck is the author of the book, Witnessing Whiteness, The Need to Talk About Race and How to Do It, which is a comprehensive introduction to issues of race, white skin privilege, and racial white identity and has been adopted as faculty reading in schools throughout the country. While still involved in this important work of anti-racism, she comes to us today to discuss current efforts in confronting and decommissioning white supremacist groups, especially with regard to their recruitment and expansion into the mainstream. Her joint publication with Christine Saxman about discovering and confronting these hate groups is incredibly comprehensive, and it is titled Swastikas in the Bathroom, Connecting the Dots Between White Supremacy, White Nationalism, the Alt-Right, and the Alt-Light. Welcome to our podcast, Shelley. We are delighted to have you, and thank you for taking time from your busy, busy life to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is a, my first opportunity to speak publicly on these issues, and I'm really looking forward to sharing what I've been learning. This is wonderful. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a professor of education um, who works at Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. I predominantly work teaching teachers who are getting their credentials. All of the anti-racism work I do is purely based on my passion for these issues and wanting to be a whole human being in this society that just rains racism on us all the time. And it just takes active efforts to make sure that we're consistently working against those influences. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you what led you to this work, but I can see that your passion for fairness is probably right up at the, there at the top. Is that true? Yeah, I think that there's more to it than that, though. It, it really started when I was becoming a teacher. I had been sort of trained by my parents into a sense of being egalitarian, but that took the form of colorblindness. And it, it really wasn't until I got to my mid-20s and was volunteering and then subsequently working at a public elementary school in Inglewood, California. That was the first time when somebody said, you know, it's great that you believe racism is wrong, but you're actually showing up as a white person with a lot of 
assumptions and ways of being that mean you really need to look at yourself and be part of an anti-racist collective that seeks to you know make this more conscious that it's not just other people who have a race, but actually you as well. And that is what began a much more um, detailed search into what race meant for my life personally. And I haven't really looked back since then. That woke you up. What caused you to actually find pathways to wake other people up to this idea that racism is across the board and there are things that we can actually do and speak of and recognize? What moved you out of your own shell into the greater world? You know, I think it was the fact that this occurred for me in the late 90s when there wasn't a lot of publication material that was helping me to understand how to be a different kind of white person. Just wasn't really the conversation at the time. I didn't understand what a white affinity group was. I didn't understand what it meant to attempt to be in allyship or in solidarity with people of color in any real meaningful way. And so the process I went through was really isolated and emotionally challenging. And I think I stayed in a position of guilt or shame for far too long, concentrating only on myself for far too long. So by the time I was able to really hear what was being asked of me by the people of color around me, that book that you named, Witnessing Whiteness, came out of me doing a dissertation process to help me understand what it meant to be a white person, what that meant for how I could responsibly react to that reality in my life. And so the book intends to help other people enter that journey in a healthy, whole kind of way and hopefully bypass a lot of the emotional wrangling that I did that I think just wasted time, wasted effort and caused me not to be able to be as productive a member of anti-racist efforts that I wanted to be. That is an incredible journey. And I have so many questions I want to ask there, but we're not going to do that today. Today's focus <laughs> is going to be on the research you've done about the current white nationalist groups in the U.S., tactics used for recruitment, and what the average person can do to help prevent the spread of white supremacy into the mainstream of our culture. And I'm so glad you're doing this. It's important work. And one of the things on your document swastikas in the bathroom. I was fascinated by the fact that nobody really is connecting the dots and you do a beautiful job of linking one group to another, to their ideals, to recruitment. And I'm going to encourage everybody who is listening to this podcast to look up swastikas in the bathroom. All you have to do is Google it to get to this really amazing comprehensive document. So when did you begin researching these groups? Let me be honest and say, I feel like I'm just a neophyte learning about this myself. And I'm encouraging those who are listening to basically do the same thing. I'm not a researcher of these things, and I don't have any particular organizations that are interrupting their efforts. But I think that what it's going to take is a lot of individuals just like me and just like you to start learning ourselves what's happening so that we can warn the people around us to protect the people that we love to not go in that direction, which by extension then protects society but what really got me 
focusing this way was Christine, the co-author of that document. She really inspired it. We had worked together for years doing workshops and we were preparing to go to a conference called the White Privilege Conference, where we work with a lot of white people on anti-racism. And she said to me, you know, I don't see anybody treating this issue. And she had been collecting articles and resources and said, would you like to take a shot at starting to uplift this information for people? And so we did a first round about a little over a year ago. I was part of a workshop with her where we tried to say, hey, these are some of the rhetorical tactics they're using. And it was fine, but it was so clear to me that I still didn't know enough to actually be articulate. And so when last fall we reconsidered, should we keep going on with this? I thought, well, only if we do something bigger, bigger than just one conference, and boy, do I have a lot to learn. And so starting in about December, moving through this last March 2019, I just entered headlong into watching documentaries, reading books, listening to audio podcasts like this one, and reading other news-related articles. There's a lot of reporting that's going on about this. Every time I would go through one or two or three resources that seemed to fit into a category, I would try to put it together in a way that now this document you mentioned, Swastikas in the Bathroom, it's about maybe 19 pages worth of text with live links to the original resources or references to those original resources. But you can take about a half hour and actually get this broad overview that I too was searching for. Could you possibly tell us really briefly, is there some overarching organization that's in charge of at least sections of what appear to be spontaneous groups? Or is it all basically grassroots springing up all over the place, deciding that white supremacy is the way to go? That's a good question. I wish it were as simple as some particular cabal of 10 people who are pulling strings. I think that would be easier to navigate. What it appears to be from what I've read is a series of different groups. I wouldn't say they're just springing up out of thin air, however. We have a very, very long history of white supremacist groups in the United States. They haven't gone away. They've morphed. They're not unintelligent. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. What we have right now are a set of individuals who have an ideology of white supremacy. And there are multiple groups that live that ideology out in many different ways. And that's not the exact same thing as the groups who actually have the ideology of white nationalism. Eli Saslow's book speaks of Derek Black and his movement out of a hate group, talks about the difference between white supremacists and white nationalists. Most of us use that term interchangeably. And to be sure, there's a lot of linkages. I see a lot of this as very large Venn diagrams with a lot of overlap, but with important distinctions. For example, White supremacists is exactly what it sounds like, the ideology that white people are better than all others. White supremacists may or may not be driven by the idea that white people should live off by themselves in a white ethno state. White nationalists believe there should be a white nation and we should be moving toward what they call race war such that 
white people would then be separated out and people of color would be removed from some places so that this white ethnostate could exist. Those people may or may not say that they think white people are better, just that they should be separate. It all is of a piece of deep racism, but they may or may not even see it that way. That's definitely like two large scopes of the extremist groups, particularly those who are working at the more violent edges of extremism. Even the term alt-right was a creation of some white supremacists in order to try to make their ideology more palatable within the mainstream. And unfortunately, it's working quite well. Alt-right is usually some combination often of white supremacist thinking, often has some white nationalist thinking mixed in there. And that's to be understood as a bit different than people who are And I had not heard this term before, the light right. There's an entire segment that is not speaking of race specifically. In fact, they push back strongly at the idea that racism is even part of their thinking. However, it's extremely anti-feminist. It's anti-egalitarian. It's very much of the ilk of what do you hate and let me stoke that fear and that fire. And a lot of this ends up working as a slippery slope or a conveyor belt or gateway drug pulling people into further ideology. And that starts to get us into more of the tactics. That's what's going on. So I'll stop there. Could you tell us a little about Derek that you mentioned in the book? Derek Black is a young man who was actually raised within the white nationalist movement, and he has left that movement. He's the subject of the book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist by Eli Saslow. Okay, thank you. What motivates people who want other people to become white supremacists or become white nationalists? And I understand the recruitment piece, but these leaders came from somewhere. Do you have any idea what motivates people to go there? There's one There's one book that really struck me. It had some really profound insight in it. And the book is called Healing from Hate, How Young Men Get Into and Out of Violent Extremism. It's by an author, Michael Kimmel. And what I learned from that book was that many of the individuals who both get pulled into these groups and then become leaders within those groups, start off having experienced a lot of trauma themselves. And so in terms of the recruitment of traumatized people or people who feel victimized, these are often people who are looking to feel strong, looking to feel part of a community that is respecting them. And unfortunately, that is coming out of having felt victimized previously. So the most extreme violent groups may be targeting people who have had very extreme trauma happen to them. So we are talking about troubled and uncared for individuals oftentimes. It's not that far of a stretch to see the tactics pulling in people who feel that they're just psychologically that they are not being respected. It may not come out of a deep acute trauma, but it may come out of them growing up in a time period where they don't know how to make sense of what it means to be who they are. You mentioned 
as you were speaking, the changing the language you called the alt light, etc. Are there other ways that you can make note of where the language has changed so that it becomes more acceptable and it's maybe an easier inroad into racism over the long haul? Yeah, the changing of language is part of a broader strategy that many of the groups are currently using. It may be useful to think of two different sorts of groups out there, two different trajectories that people take into these movements. And I'm picking up on some themes that are talked about in a different book called Everything You Love Will Burn by Vegas Tenold. This is a reporter who went and infiltrated and basically spent two years working with white supremacists and white nationalists to learn about them. And one of the things that he talked about is characterizing these different groups as either the boots or the suits. The boots are, as you might imagine, sort of the boots on the ground, the folks who are extremist, violent type folks who are pulling people in into physical collective groups, doing fight club type activities. Some of the groups would burn crosses, others like the Rise Above movement um, called RAM. Some of the language they might use is about taking back Western chauvinism, masculinity. It's about trying to have pride in one's cultural roots and protecting their women from an onslaught of people of color, men of color specifically. So in terms of the language shifts, the boots have learned over time that showing up with things like Nazi symbology, the classic racist language of the past is not allowing mainstream white people to accept them. And so what they're doing is shifting their language to make it more palatable. And then the suits, which are the more online pseudo intellectual groups, are trying to take science to create arguments about the value of white supremacist notions, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the language they use is about becoming an identitarian or becoming a race realist. These are some key trigger words that people should understand are really meant to deflect the underlying ideology they have, which is white nationalist or white supremacist. But they're trying to say that we're just focusing on Western culture. We're just trying to uplift our identity as European Americans. Language such as, if people can be proud of being black, why can't we be proud of being white? All of these sorts of tricks of tactics essentially ignore the history of racism, which is where black pride as a mandate for self-protection comes from. What did it feel like to recognize that, that coded language that is working basically toward the middle, the mainstream, so to speak? What did it do to you? When I read Derek Black's statement in the book, Rising Out of Hatred, that their groups were specifically targeting people who say, I'm not racist, but... It started keeping me up at night. It created a pit in the bottom of my stomach that only rarely goes away at this point because it started me being able to recognize how far it's expanded in terms of the ideology of white nationalism infecting 
and I do say infecting purposefully because that's what they've intended to do, the national conversation. There are so many people who are adopting the platform of white nationalists without even recognizing that that's where it's ultimately coming from. One would hope that if they did recognize it, they wouldn't do it, but I'm gonna keep hoping it. Let's talk a little bit about recruitment then. And I was wondering if you could speak about the vulnerable groups and outside of the language, how they pull in new members. Right now, the largest effort, I would say, the one that definitely is keeping me up at night is the recruitment effort that's happening online. There are a number of ways that online recruitment happens. One that's extremely targeted and is a bit more of a one-to-one relationship is in online gaming. There are many individuals who are on the online chat features of online games that are making relationships with the target audience are white 14 to 21 year olds who are on these games such as Fortnite, etc. And they don't start out by talking racist language. They have an attitude of bit by bit pulling people into having a sense of belonging, having a sense of community with each other, trying to see what their fears or hatreds already are, and then building on those, resonating with those until they feel that they've got somebody hooked into their relationship. And then over time, they will um, start to reveal the more racist elements of their ideologies. Other online community groups are targeting young people who have experienced anxiety, depression, who have been very disengaged with society and are looking for a way to feel empowered, to feel heroic. And so as the that conveyor belt moves along, they are trying to offer young white men an opportunity to feel that they are in some way preserving white masculinity, preserving and fighting for white families, et cetera, et cetera. And so while this is not the way they start the conversation, this is where it ultimately goes. They see themselves as mavericks or somehow now important. Definitely. And what's very different than what was true in decades past is that the rhetoric and the continuing onslaught of messaging is only a few clicks away. And especially with the online tools these days and the various chat rooms and the various ways that young people are navigating online spaces, they can get into some very ugly territory very, very quickly. And when we look at the mass casualty shootings that have occurred via white terrorists, which is about two thirds of the terrorist events that have occurred within the United States in the last number of years, they've been from these these alt-right, far-right extremist groups. One of them in Santa Barbara just a few years ago was one of these individuals who had moved into this anti-feminist space. There's three different sorts of groups to pay attention to on this front. One of them includes people who would say they're part of a men's rights movement, And they may have some legitimate concerns. However, many of the people in there are also um, advocating some pretty nasty reactions to women. There's also a group called the incels, which means involuntary celibates. And these are the folks who basically blame women for 
their inability to form the kind of relationships that they would want to have. And then there are some men who their initial effort, maybe they're trying to learn how to pick up girls. And so there's this whole movement called pickup artists. Um, the thing is, the men that they find in those spaces will fairly quickly move from the picking up of girls into the blaming of women for um, what's been not their uh, success with women thus far. My 14-year-old grandson and I were talking about this today, and it was quite interesting. He just named pretty much every group you just said. The language becomes anti-feminist, and somehow it's easy to be anti-feminist that women are taking all this stuff away from them that rightfully belongs to them, and there is a real sense that they're the ones being discriminated against, that the only ones being demanded of giving anything up are white men. One of the things that I'm personally concerned about, and this moves into a different sort of tactic, some of the more pseudo-intellectual groups, they wear khakis and polo shirts, and they arrive on college campuses, and they put out flyers with innocuous sounding, but deeply troubling messages like, it's okay to be white. My first response when I heard that was, well, yes, of course, it's okay to be white. But these groups are trying to take the confusion around that to say, oh, you are not being respected as a white person. They are using that language because they understand that it is in aggression against liberal activist groups who are trying to say we actually need to be looking at issues of whiteness and we need to be looking at issues of white supremacy. They've had hundreds hundreds of campus groups over the last few years crop up that are pushing these types of messages. It's really something to watch out for. I do think that we collectively need to get better at being able to name what victimization, what does that look like? And really understanding what the history of victimizing people of color has actually looked like. And the fact of the matter is most white people don't actually know the horrors that people of color have had to endure in this country. When we see an article that comes out and says that very recently, over 75% of Republicans believe that white people are discriminated against and that that's just as bad as what people of color are going through in this country. There's a lot, there's a lot that we need to understand in order to be able to push back against that idea. Thank you. I'd like to add one other thing about the tactics that are being used in relationship to, quote unquote, this battleground. And that is the language that's being used on the far right. Um, they are using some very, very specific tactics to try and disrupt people who consider themselves liberal in order to get them to abandon online spaces. They will actually lie and deny who they are and what they're trying to do public facing so that they can start to pull people in bit by bit. They will also use rebranding. So there are some of these groups who once their back channel chats are published for all to see, they will actually change the name of their organization so that it's harder to follow and harder to understand who they are. They also have the tendency to attempt in bad faith to get liberal people to engage with time-wasting conversations where there really isn't any honest effort to be in dialogue. So I would just encourage listeners to be thinking about, is this an honest dialogue that we can have? Can you have the kind of dialogue where it's not just 
tactical point to another point that has nothing to do with each other, but really grapple together with a particular idea with what we hope is that nonviolent loving spirit and to actually stop the dialogue when it stops being that, because it could be being used as a time waster. You mentioned that people using the term, I am not a racist, but were being recruited, mostly people, one would guess, from the mainstream or people who are not committed to anti-racism or to racism. How does that particular phrase help identify somebody who is convertible to the cause? I think that as our country has become increasingly polarized, it has become apparent to many people who are on the liberal side of things that I'm not racist, but kind of sounds like, and yet you're going to say something you already think is pretty racist. And so what I think has happened is for many liberal people who are picking the side of egalitarianism and of justice and anti-bias, there has been a dismissiveness toward people who start out sentences like that. Whereas I think people who are on the far right in these extremist groups have recognized that people who start off a sentence with, I'm not racist, but have at least some confusion about something. And so they seize on that and see them as the convertible population to pull in. Whereas my big insight was, well, wait a minute, these are people who care enough to actually say I'm not racist, but. So I think it would serve us well, particularly those of us who are white and engaged in relationships with others in our families and our communities who still start with those sentences to seize that as an opportunity to help shape Let's talk about the butt part. Let's talk about where there might be some misunderstandings and let's begin to undercut that narrative that only white people are being assaulted and being discriminated against now because that is the narrative of the alt-right. To somehow undercut that fear tactic that says that our life is under threat because of this insurgent of invaders and whatnot because that is the language that the far right is using. And we're going to need to really uplift the value of orientations toward not just nonviolence, but deep inclusion and the value and the benefit that comes from having a community that's invested in that. Which leads me to my next question. What are some specific things that individuals can do to counter this recruitment and in a larger scale, the white nationalist threat or the white supremacist threat? Thank you for that question, because I think it's really important that we don't feel so disheartened. I do hope that everyone will go and read that document, Swastikas in the Bathroom. I do think we need to understand the full scope of what we face. And then I think it behooves each of us to take that first step of once we have informed ourselves than to try and inform the people that are around us. So I think that the modeling you just named for the audience is perfect. You just had a very frank and real and open conversation with your grandchild, which is creating that linkage, which makes that individual less likely to move out and take it more seriously. Now, if you as a listening audience have white people in your lives who are adults who don't know about this information. We need to know about this information. So help spread that word. Help 
other people have conversations with their own kids so that we can help them process how they're being manipulated and what the end goals of these groups actually are. Because I don't think our young people really want to end up in the extremist violent place that these groups are trying to pull our children into. And let's talk to teachers and local professors. Who are the people who are educating the children around us? Because whether or not they are going to give presentations at their school on this, they can at least be part of recognizing what the warning signs are. They might need to actually have some intervention conversations. Also helping to amplify a wonderful resource to all the teachers that they know. It's called U.S. versus Hate. I'm actually not sure if they call it us versus hate or us versus hate, but I encourage you all to look up that website. It is a website that's for teachers, I think, and for students. And they have various activities and ways of encouraging students to be standing up against hate because ultimately the youth talk to each other and we need to help youth know what to talk to each other about. Also, as an action step, bringing this to any conversation about anti-bullying. The U.S. versus hate website does a nice job of pairing these things together. And the one other thing I'll mention as a tool, I just listened to a podcast by Reveal, the investigative journalist. I would look up Reveal, the podcast, and um, there is a very recent one that's a hate in the homeland. And it has a wonderful interview with someone who's very much part of nonviolent organizing strategies and speaks of these issues quite profoundly. There were three different segments and two of the segments absolutely blew me away with new information that I had not yet come across, including how comics are being created in order to further this agenda. So there's a lot for us to pay attention to. And I am an educator and I think education is really the key. If we can educate each other about this, we will be less prone and less susceptible to falling into it. And by us, I mean not only ourselves, but also the young people that are in our lives. Thank you for that. And before I go any further, let me clarify a couple of things. Uh, U.S. versus hate. Is that a website name? Yes. USVSHate.org, I believe. Thank you. And also reveal the podcast, Hate in the Homeland. How do I get to that? I just Googled it uh, <laughs> and it came right up. Okay. All right. When we were talking previously, there was one idea you had that I think I should give voice to. And that is when you are thinking about disrupting the process, you have a young child or young man in your life and you can see the need for somebody to intervene. You mentioned that number one, don't tell their kids that their ideas stink. And when you do confront it, the better way to go about it is to ask where the ideas come from, where they've heard this sort of thing and expand to the manipulation in the other areas after that, gently at least. You still hold to that, right? I do. There's been a lot of reporting of children, um, young people who are doing and saying really hurtful and hateful things that are getting captured online. And while a school does have the responsibility to make sure that students are accountable for their actions, a lot of the reporting indicates that school officials are focusing 
only and exclusively on the punishment angle. And I think that all of what we're talking about here informs us that that's important, but it's not enough. What we actually need to do is, is get curious and try to figure out what are those students being influenced by. Give me the name of your newsletter, because there was an excellent article in June 2019 about a woman whose son became lost for a while into this white supremacist movement. You know, it doesn't have a name. If anybody goes on my personal website, which is ShellyTouchlet.com, and clicks on the newsletter button, you just subscribe and then and or even if you don't want to subscribe, you can click on a button to see all archived past newsletters. I'm going to spell your name out for the audience so they can go get it. It's S-H-E-L-L-Y-T-O-C-H-L-U-K.com. And you're right, it is in the June edition. It is a post of a mother who is writing about her 13-year-old son and what the family went through watching her son get pulled into the far right and then what it took to get him back. One of the most amazing insights that I pulled out of that article was the way she ended up needing to stay in relationship with her child in order to allow him to re-emerge from that space. If parents and loved ones and coaches and faith leaders and the people in a child's life can figure out how to stay in close relationship with the child in order to become curious and help that person stay connected to someone who is not part of the hate group, that's really essential. I agree. I also totally agree. And you were very clear on that. And start talking about it. Talk to people about it. Talk to groups about it. For sure, talk to your kids and your grandchildren about it. I am becoming increasingly clear that I would like to play a role in connecting white people who are paying attention to this and need support and ideas for how to talk to people in their lives and potentially become prepared to give their own presentations to their own community groups. I'd like to be in touch with people so they can get in touch with me through my newsletter. On the newsletter, at the base of it, if they are looking to be a part of a dialogue group around doing anti-racism in their community, they can sign up to be part of an online call. And I have a feeling that that call is going to turn into us dealing with this sort of issue for people who want to do follow-up. Boy, this is, I have to say, you're doing so much good anti-racism work. You're teaching at the college level and you're writing at the same time. And through all this, you are motivated by your passion to create this dialogue and confront the white supremacist groups and the white nationalist groups and the alt-right. I'm not sure how you managed to do it. How do you do all this and, and why do you do all this? I do believe in the vision of us having a world where we truly are supportive of one another, where different groups are living together in ways that don't require one group to experience significant violence on a regular basis. I've experienced communities where that has occurred. I've tasted it. I've touched it. I know it's possible. 
that's the world I want to live in. And the kind of person I want to be is the kind of person who continues to strive for that world. It's about having my own stake in wanting to live in a healthy and whole society. And I think it requires me to acknowledge the truth of what's going on around me and to speak when I can speak, where I can speak. All of us can do that and all of us can do it on a daily basis. And it may seem small, but every bit counts. Every conversation we have with somebody that helps to uplift these ideas matters. And every time we have one of these conversations, we get better at having the conversation. Every additional book that we read helps us understand things better. Every time we go and we sit in a community that his experiencing the world differently than we do so that we can understand what kind of oppression still exists in our country gives us more of an opportunity to then extend that understanding to others. And quite frankly, it also extends relationships and the extension of those relationships allows for a decrease of anxiety. I feel so much clearer about who I am in the world And that feels good. It feels good to be able to walk in a room knowing that I can have conversations with anybody of any different background and know that I'm in service to something that will support all of us. If all of us are able to have conversations with white young people to help reduce their confusion about what it means for them to live in a world that is rapidly changing, that is asking them to understand themselves in relation to race in a way that they didn't have to before. If we can be healthy in those conversations and we can help provide a path towards something that's life affirming and life sustaining, then I think our young people will be less susceptible to the messages that are based on fear and hate. Thank you. That's inspiring. You know, this podcast is essentially about individuals who choose to make the world a better place for us all, doing it consciously and hopefully letting the rest of us know that we too can be part of the effort. Along these lines, are there any stories of personal aha moments or personal connection or success that you'd be willing to share as we get ready to leave this podcast? Yeah, the story that comes to mind is from a while back, but it's something that continues to guide me throughout all of the years that I've been trying to make whatever small efforts I make. It occurred when I was just coming to understand issues of race and class and bias and oppression, and I didn't really know where I fit in to all of it. But I was doing a lot of volunteer work, and at the time, I was really uncomfortable about what it meant to be white. I hadn't figured that out yet. And I was talking to a woman at the Community Self-Determination Institute. It was a nonprofit that focused on um, youth of color living in Watts. I was asking her these deep questions about the work they were doing and how I could be supportive. And she turned to me and she said, Shelly, we got this. We know what to do for our young people. What we need is for you to go work with your white people, help them understand so that the doors stay open, so that when our young people show up asking for an opportunity, those doors are open for them. And to be perfectly honest, it was not that moment 
where I started dedicating myself to working with white people to open our own eyes and become better for the sake of a global community. It took me a while to realize the impact of what she was saying. But what really, really stuck with me is that I couldn't hear that message until I got over my own anxiety about what it meant for me to be the kind of white person who was dedicated to the mission of justice for all of us and how that meant I had to resolve my own self-concerns. And that is why everything I do at this point involves some level of deep processing of who am I and how am I showing up? And how do I help the people around me who also were raised in some similar way of being white? How do we collectively support each other to move past the socialized messages we've had that have embedded racism within us without our consciousness, without our intent, without our permission? We can collectively work to dismantle that. White people uniquely suited to do that work with and for each other in a way that ends up serving the global whole. Thank you for that. Thank you very much for that. We have been interviewing Dr. Shelley Touchluck, co-author of the document, Swastikas in the Bathroom, and the author of the book, Witnessing Whiteness. This is your host, Joanne Perry, and thank you for joining us at the Friends for Nonviolent World and the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.